so. So. <laughs> Welcome to our next session of Peace Stevens. This is Liz. This is Zine. And today we're going to actually have, or we're going to talk about, sorry, English. We're going to respond to a listener question. Yes. <laughs> Zine always finishes my sentences. It's like we're in a, like a relationship with no benefits. I think we have benefits, like, not the benefits, but, like, like, it's like PhD was the podcast. The lowercase like benefits, not the capital? Yeah. Okay. It's like we just produced a child. We're listening to our child right now. But with no labor. Well, there is, like, labor. Okay. That's it true. We do a little work. What is happening to this metaphor? How do we explain this? So we what? have a question. <laughs> well, we have an answer. For to a question. Our friend Michelle Tong <laughs> posted on our Facebook page asking us. Mm-hmm. Do you want to read out the question? I sure do. Loading. 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 <clears throat> this is from one of our readers, and she says, Hey, PhDivas, do you think someone can appropriate their own cultural identity? Well... Reader <laughs> or listener, listener, God, I don't, yeah, gosh, listener. Um, we have a few responses to that. Yeah, we, I think it, it's a really interesting way of phrasing it because I think that, yeah, the topic of cultural appropriation has been is particularly hot right now. Well, yeah. it's, I mean, like, obviously, cultural appropriation has always happened, but critique of cultural appropriation, I think, perhaps is at a high point, like coming off of our. Nicki Minaj episode, we have like a lot mm-hmm. of celebrities come calling out other people for appropriation. We see that like mainstream media outlets will call out performers for appropriation. Mm-hmm. But then this is sort of different. Like this is, can you appropriate your own cultural identity? Which I think is a really interesting way to phrase it. So I thought this was a great question. I think you can definitely appropriate your own cultural identity. If I use myself as a personal example, I am ethnically black. I'm a part of the black community in the United States. However, I don't exhibit all the characteristics of a black person. Not in, I mean, I, I am one person. I'm a part of the diaspora, the beautiful spectrum, but I don't exhibit all of them. Mm-hmm. So to go expand that farther or further, um, let's say I didn't grow up in the trap. I didn't grow up around a lot of drugs. I didn't grow up around, not to say that it's black culture, um, which is not what I want to say. Maybe it's like the way you're thinking but, about it is like, because I think trap music is a good example because it's, suddenly becoming extremely popular in the mainstream. That right. A lot of people who have not, come, yeah, have not grown up in the trap, and my understanding is that Fetty Wap is not even someone who is from the trap. At least one of my students Yeah, I don't actually know if he, whether he is or my, he isn't, but the trap refers to an area of a neighborhood where maybe a lot of drug deals go down or um, people may hang out. And I didn't grow up in those spaces. Mm-hmm. And so, in a way... It is cultural appropriation for me to walk around like I know about the trap, like I know about this life that I don't mm-hmm. actually know about. In a similar way where I love reality shows, I love like shade. I mean, think about all these, the, the lingo that people, um, that a lot of black people have... Um, used that are now being used by everyone, like by Felicia. Mm, it's actually a yeah. quote from a very popular movie. Um, See, I only became aware yeah. of by Felicia as a phenomenon, I think, in like the last year or two. Yeah, and it probably wasn't that it probably is a case you haven't heard it from a black person. But I guess that's also that's talking about cultural appropriation across 
ethnicities. Yeah. But I think, it, again, I do think it's true that there are some ways in which I can say certain things and people may not think twice about it because I look black. Mm-hmm. I am black. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, okay, you, you know what I'm trying to say. But in in ways that I, I didn't grow up with that mm-hmm. and I didn't, I don't speak like that in my normal language. You know, I, I don't speak like that every day. But let's say tomorrow if I wanted to, I no one would really check me. Nobody mm-hmm. would tell me mm-hmm. I can't because I'm black. Yeah. And black people are allowed to say those things. Mm-hmm. Because those are the spaces that we inhabit. Um, and I guess it might even be similar for you in some ways. I mean, you're, you're Asian, right? Mm-hmm. That's your, your ethnicity. But here is the confession. I am an Asian who has never been to Asia. Yeah. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> what are you going to do about yeah, that? I, I was born in Canada. Um, and, of course, I, I don't really speak um, Cantonese mm-hmm. or Mandarin. Uh, and yet, maybe someone wouldn't really think twice about me u- using them or talking about them. They certainly don't think twice about accusing you of going back to your country. That's very true. That's very true. But then it's like maybe the, the other, thinking of it through the lens of how our friend Michelle put it, like, can you appropriate your own culture? Like, what happens then... Say if I start like wearing a chi pao, which is a Chinese um, this Chinese dress, mm-hmm. or a ch- it's also called a cheng sam, as someone who has only grown up in North America, um, yeah, like does that what does that really do? Because like on the one hand, yes, it is my culture, quote unquote, but is it really my culture? Or likewise, I think it's perhaps um, a case for a lot of people who are first, second generation. Mm-hmm. Like oh, on the yeah. one hand, like our families, like my family, of course, came to. To Canada, to North America, because of certain political circumstances, um, I could say that for my family, part of it was because of the eventual handover of Hong Kong to China, and it was something that they're very much conscious of. Uh, but for me to talk about the particular struggles under the Cultural Revolution, um, on the one hand, yes, it's like does impact me, but it doesn't impact me directly, and so it would be, I think, appropriate for me to speak with it with a certain type of authority. Yeah, this is interesting because here you have the sort of internal dialogues that may not be um, acknowledged across mm-hmm. cultures. So it's, um, what I'm saying is the experience you just expressed now, I wouldn't be able to say, hey, you're, you're appropriating something. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't really know that and I wouldn't know what to call out because I'm not a part of that community. Mm-hmm. And so here is where you have this internal debate and... Um, one thing I'm thinking about is, so fine, it's a pro, It's possible to appropriate your own culture. Mm-hmm. Maybe the other thing is, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Or why is it that we don't really call out those instances where we're more likely to call out when someone's very visibly doing something, mm-hmm. you know, the... Yeah intercultural rather than inter yeah. intracultural what like i wonder if it has internal. to come with this sort of anxiety um about who gets to own culture anyway yeah and that's that, huge yeah and so i think it, it comes to this sort of instability and of course there's been a lot of work by cultural critics like vijay prashad about how you know there's this way that when we talk about appropriation sometimes it does really depend on this model of culture being static mm-hmm. as opposed to the fact that like so much culture is always been changing, adapting through different people. Like I think a good example is like we think of banh mi as something that's very Vietnamese, but banh mi itself is the product of colonialism because yeah. it was French colonialism that okay. gave them that particular type of bread, for example. Mm-hmm. Or like we think of, let's see, like 
marinara sauce is being really Italian, but of course tomatoes come, came from the New World, or potatoes from the Irish, well that also came from North America. That mm -hmm. there's this way that like even if you trace food, it's like it sort of shows the way that authenticity is always something that's suspect because it's always been about changes in history and people making do with things. And so perhaps... Which makes it harder yeah. to actually um, defend the culture because yeah. then you don't know who it really belongs to. Yeah, but then at the same time, I think And it's that easier to mask if you look mm -hmm. the same, but now that that's not happening so much. Yeah, and I think what's difficult is that we definitely do want to say that some forms of cultural appropriation are wrong. And I think it's maybe easiest to say like when it's like insulting or maybe erasing mm -hmm. a type of cultural history, like for example, the way, way that people appropriate Native American war bonnets, mm -hmm. um, like that would be a good example, or like when, when it's something that's parodying it, um, like that's easy to, that's easier to call it out as a bad type of appropriation, but maybe it also comes to this sort of fear when we look at like um, many different examples that it becomes more, more and more hazy about who gets to, to use what. I saw this really interesting argument on this website called Everyday Feminism mm -hmm. that about the phrase two-spirited. I don't know if you've ever heard no, of that I've before. No, I've never heard of that. So it's a, a phrase that has been used um, a lot within my understanding with Native American communities, perhaps in the, the 90s, that um, outside of the LGBTQIA model, that there's been pre-existing ideas of what could be considered queer in Native and in Indigenous communities that they call two-spiritedness. Okay. And so sometimes the way... Um, uh, Native peoples will describe themselves as being queer would be through two-spiritedness, but then this particular thing I was reading well, made this point that uh, the particular writer isn't actually from North America, and the phrase two-spirit is actually particularly a North American phenomenon, and so even though she is a, um, an indigenous person, she feels like it actually doesn't represent her. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that could like a, a rather complicated one, but yeah. So, so what would you say this means for this, for that example, then, um, I guess it maybe comes to this question of like who gets to own uh, culture, but also like culture is not hegemonic within a particular category. Mm -hmm. Like we have these like convenient categories. It's like Asian American or African American, but within it, or, or in this case, like indigenous. But there's so many different cultures that you're trying to lump together under the label that it's not yeah. quite the same thing. Like it's not being Asian is not really the same thing as being Chinese and being Chinese is not the same as being Cantonese or Fukien yeah, or something in the same like that. way in which I am black but that doesn't mean that I have I possess every identity or experience that yeah. a black person would possess and it's possible for another black person to have a different experience than me yeah. which I, it actually becomes a huge issue when you become the only person of that um, that group like, so when I'm the only black person in the room, people kind of do expect me to represent all black mm -hmm. people or um, be able to speak for all black people mm -hmm. when, in fact, I, I'm not like all black people. Yeah. But, and, and I don't the represent like, them all. And, and, yeah. and I can't. And no one can, really, if you think about it. Right. My experiences aren't like a lot of other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. they, they are similar to some, but they're definitely not similar to all in a way that we expect them to be. Mm -hmm. And it's weird that we also expect it. So even though we know that one person can't represent every identity of that mm -hmm. um, culture, it somehow doesn't stop us from also like looking at other people and trying to make those assumptions as we meet new people mm -hmm. and go on. And sometimes maybe it's easy for us to 
I guess to draw on those associations to get some sort of cultural authority or authenticity for ourselves because like yeah. if you didn't know any better I could probably like pose as being you know more claiming some sort of authority over Chineseness when I actually mm -hmm. don't when it wasn't actually something that I grew up with but because yeah. it's expected it's sort of easier to play play into it or you know I, I experienced something that was kind of scary well not scary okay. and like I was fearful of my life or anything but when I was in Paris I was on the train and everyone's speaking French. Uh -huh. French is all around me. And I was passing by this Asian family. And they're like these little, three little children. And they were holding hands. And they were speaking French. Uh -huh. And in that moment, as I saw them walking alongside all the other people, and I thought to myself, these children are French. They will grow up French, mm -hmm. right? They will have the French language. They will have lived in Paris. and But they will look, they will be, like, Asian. Mm -hmm. And, like, what does that really mean to have people growing up in different parts of the world and kind of having this identity? I just, could, I just thought about how, I don't know, looking at how France was in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. They didn't look like that. And now French can mean something else. It, you can be French and not be Caucasian. Yeah, although I think it is a question because, like, France so, is particularly obsessed with cultural purity, so that's why there's been a lot of, like, problems with race in France in the past several years. Yeah, I hear there's especially change with, of foot. Yeah, and especially the younger generation are more Muslim willing to... French people. Yeah, younger generations are more willing to accept other um, cultures. And also, it's very similar to any city that you find, even in the U.S., bigger cities tend to have more diversity and like mm -hmm. more like, you, you do you, I'll do me kind of mentalities. Um, and I, I was in that big city. But it was really interesting to think about because someone could probably easily assume, like, you're not French, mm -hmm. you're not from here. But if they grow up here and they pay their taxes and they learn, this is the language that they mm -hmm. understand, and if they know, what makes them not French? Mm -hmm. But also then also the question becomes, like, what makes them not Asian? Like, what do they and identify with? what makes more? them not Asian? Which is crazy. But at the same time, thinking about how mobile our world is right now, mm -hmm. it is very plausible that they can grow up anywhere and they mm -hmm. can move around anytime they want to. And this isn't just, like, an isolated event. This is what the world is now. Yeah. And, I, and maybe that's another what I think is a big issue is how do you deal with the cultural spread and mm -hmm. our, as well as our desire to have an identity and, and be able to kind of protect and mold that as we are so, um, becoming so interlocked. Yeah. And I think it, yeah, it comes to this sort of this fear of the dissolution of categories, even as we, we feel this necessity to keep those uh, categories stable. Just as much as we enjoy traveling, we enjoy different foods, we enjoy our friends who are from different places, but we still want to have the categories. I think a lot about hip-hop uh -huh. because hip-hop is a, a, an international music yeah. genre. Like it is loved, and hip-hop stars are popular all over the world. And it makes perfect sense that someone will like this music and mm -hmm. want to emulate this music and be in this music. 
Um, and it's hard because at the same time, the music is spreading, and that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. But then you also want people who create that music to be prosperous in that music. Yeah, to benefit from it. To benefit from that music. And you, you want people, you want to still be able to judge the authenticity of that music. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that with also getting the widespread fame yeah. of that music? Like maybe when we say authenticity is actually code for a collection of other types of anxieties that have to do with power and about having other people get, getting credit mm-hmm. rather than like something having inherent authentic value. Mm-hmm. Instead, we can be concerned about, say, like say the fathers of hip hop, like not doing as well prosper. Um, like, yeah, not being that economically well-off, even mm-hmm. though the very products that they helped create that were made from their experiences mm-hmm. are, are being so popular or making so much money internationally for mega corporations and people that um, are far more privileged than they are. Yeah. And I think it sort of, authenticity becomes a way, like a, an overly simplified way of talking about very complicated issues. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Certainly with the music case that we just mentioned with hip-hop, that is one of the central issues that that um, artists, that black artists aren't always as popular or successful financially with this music that they make as with someone else who really kind of takes their same sound and does it. And I, I, Iggy Azalea, <laughs> Elvis Presley, Eminem. Yeah. Okay, it, we could talk about the relative yeah. merits and talents of each of them, but yeah, and I think that's what's really tricky about it because I think you can argue that they're good at mm-hmm. what they do, absolutely, and they probably also love what they do. But there's also this part where they are also still making money off of something that artists who. I, I don't know. It's it's super complicated. Yeah. And I and again, I think the more that we have this interconnected world, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be interconnected, yeah. but I'm saying that it's a challenge that we have to meet. And that, um, I guess, saying that we should stop interacting isn't going to stop the spread. Yeah. Like we love the spread. We're yeah. doing the spread. We, and it's never, we're doing this podcast. Yeah. Like who listens to this podcast? And we've know? never not had that type of cross-cultural circulation like it's a they're in different forms and through different mediums but uh, again I, I this idea of like any sort of cultural um, homogeny or purity is always sort of this false notion I was gonna say so I actually did a, a unit with my students that talked about appropriation and adaptation and looking at specifically at both martial arts and hip-hop because mm-hmm. I thought it'd be a really interesting combination and so there's this anime series um by the uh, this director Shinjiro Watanabe, who's known for Watanabe, I think, who's known for Cowboy Bebop, but any which is based around jazz. But his he has a series called Samurai Champloo, which I showed you actually briefly. I don't know if you remember, mm-hmm. but it's like sort of set I think in the Meiji era of Japan, and it uses hip hop. It's completely anachronistic, and like there's it's this really cool aesthetic. Like the opening is all hip hop. Like the way that some characters fight is um, sort of reminiscent of of break dancing. And, like, there's so many things that are anachronistic that are drawn from hip culture, culture like tagging and other things like that. But there's a sort of weird thing that, even though it's so built around hip-hop, hip-hop aesthetics, like, even, like, hip-hop street clothing and other things like that, mm-hmm. there aren't black people in it. Yeah. And so th- there's a sort of weird absence there of the very people that helped to create it. But then on the flip side, you have something like the Boondocks, which actually is, like, sampling, mm-hmm. you know, an Asian aesthetic while also using hip-hop. And what's been really interesting to me about the Boondocks is that um, Aaron Regrud, who has created the Boondocks, is a fan yeah. of Samurai Champloo. Yeah. So 
Um, in fact, in the background scenes of one of the first seasons, you actually see one of the main characters of Samurai Champloo appear in the boondocks. So again, you have this sort of really complicated cultural mixing that, um, so anime even as a phenomenon borrowed from Disney and then Japan made it its own thing. And then you have something like Samurai Champloo that's using hip hop and making it its own thing without black people. But then we have someone like Aaron Magruder who's then um, drawing from both anime but specifically Samurai Champloo and then again making it a commentary about African-American culture. So like this, this way that this continual cross-cultural exchange going on. And also like martial arts. Um, you can think of how integral martial arts has been to Wu-Tang Clan and that movie that you yeah. had to watch, like The Last Dragon, The Last right? Dragon. Yeah, I wish I could talk movie. a lot about, about that, but yeah. now that I finally got to watch Bruce it. Bruce Leroy, yes. who's the master? <laughs> you don't know who the master? Okay. No, I did. I watched it. I watched it. <laughs> and so it was no, an interesting comic. So I also had my students look at parts of Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon and then parts of... Um, the Last Dragon. So yeah. obviously you have like Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee, and then you have like this Motown movie follow-up, mm -hmm. um, uh, the The Last Dragon with Bruce Leroy, who's from Harlem. Mm -hmm. And so you have this interesting cross-cultural conversation about martial arts, and like, can you really say that um, the African American characters there or Motown is appropriating it? Something more complicated is going on. Like, why did martial arts really appeal to African Americans in the seventies? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different interesting conversations about like how did it represent a type of resistance like a third world type of resistance that was also one that didn't have to was not so dependent on money money was something that was mm -hmm. very universal that everyone could speak to um also bruce lee trained, which is also yeah. one of the movies people like hip-hop yeah like this universal this sort of street cred credibility yeah, this accessibility the struggle. the struggle that people can relate to and like jim kelly um who is in a number of bruce lee's films is also one of Bruce Lee's students, and I think maybe he's one of the first notable black martial artists at the time. And so, like, obviously friendships are much more complicated than following along strict cultural lines, and that's one interesting example. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely complicated, and even as you were talking, I'm just wondering, like, how do we find a way to, to deal with this? I don't know. It, it it just feels like what we want is like we want our cake and we want to eat it too. Mm -hmm. So how do we preserve our cake? <laughs> no, I could see do that. Do we eat less of it? Do we um, not share? Do we eat muffins instead? No. Sorry, I don't. I, I'm just trying to see like what. How can we push this? Do we make another one? <laughs> make another cake. Make your own cake. Yeah, and and it's definitely very complicated. Maybe it, it's like we. Is it just? Maybe because everything is so complex that you have to just take everything at a case-by-case -case basis. But the difficulty is that you have to do so much work on like what the history of something is and like. And honestly, it's subjective and, like, because yeah. again, my experiences won't be that of another black person's experiences. Therefore, what I just be like authentic isn't probably going to be what they might see as being authentic. Right. So then the idea of like what the what's a cultural appropriation is in question with every person. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's just like a, the, there's even individual level as well as group, mm -hmm. like heterogeneity. And the thing is like, then it just requires such an active level of engagement that no one is really able to sustain constantly. Yeah, it's like, it's and they exhausting. use like whatever, I, I don't care. Which you see happening, I mean, I think even think of the response to Rachel, Rachel Doljal, uh -huh. um, I, Definitely know some black people who are like, and 
whatever. You Rihanna know, like, actually said that. I like, think who cares? I think it's a beautiful thing. And then there are other people who, you know, are like, this is crazy. There's a black woman. Um, there's a there's a white woman pretending to be a black woman and getting jobs and representing herself as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this isn't fair. Like, this has happened a mm-hmm. lot. And... And, I, and I've, I've heard those responses. People like, oh, who, who cares? And the other people who care very deeply about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's very polarizing. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting example because, like, if she just borrowed the aesthetics, would that be as problematic as the fact that she actually took roles that could have helped to foster um, actual African Americans that would would benefited from those positions? Like, I think that there's a way that you could, in her case, maybe separate the aesthetics and the material. Not that aesthetics aren't a part of it, but if you were trying to start to draw lines, that might be one obvious way to start. Well, I found it, I found her persona challenging because she can choose to be black, but black people can't really choose to be white. Yeah, or like passing and is so very different is the other way. And so there is sort of a privilege in there. Mm-hmm. There's like this choice. Um, and again, I think... It, so maybe the the question I'd be asking is, when does the appropriation go wrong? Because clearly there's some appropriation that's social transmission, mm-hmm. which is like a natural interaction. And then there's other parts where you start to gain economic advantage or really you're taking advantage of a situation in a mm-hmm. way that people who are a part of that culture cannot mm-hmm. do. Like you have a certain power over that and... Her being able to choose, and also for me personally, her just saying that she that she had this experience, that she was black, when she's in a culture that gives her privilege because she is white, was mm-hmm. very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, because even if she's trying to pass as a black woman, she's also still a light-skinned woman, and now she's entering into this colorism mm-hmm. kind of dynamic, and it's like she's not really trying to engage any of that. And also she's white. You can't you can't undo that privilege. That's mm-hmm. not how social that's not how it works in the US. And that's sort of funny thing, it's like she wanted both types of privilege at once. Mm-hmm. Or it, but at the same time of course like being black is not exactly privileged, but like it's almost this misunderstanding despite seeing someone who does African American studies of seeing blackness as a privilege as opposed to being a product of a particular type of of, of violent history. Like there's a way yeah. that she's like somehow managed to reduce it in her mind to a set of privileges as opposed to an actual history that impacts people. Yeah. It, it made it feel like blackness was a commodity. And yeah. this is all too well um, a story that people know where black culture gets used, mm-hmm. but black people are not loved as much. Yeah. And by loved, I mean they don't get the sympathy or the benefit of a doubt. But you love the music, you love the dancing and the hair, then you do it. Mm-hmm. It's like I can do the same dance. And um, you're seen props as ghetto. Whereas I'm the other ghetto and hypersexualized, like, and you're like, this is cute awesome. and fun and yeah. innocent. Yeah, it just becomes all so different. Like, I remember one example is like wearing bindis, like Hindu bindis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like if you're, you do that when you're actually Hindu, then you, you know, you're seen as being like antiquated or traditionalist. Mm-hmm. But then like if you're someone who isn't, then it's like, oh, you're exotic. And like, you know, you're just really cosmopolitan. Yeah, and maybe that's, that, that is the central issue with the appropriation. Again, when you're, you're getting this benefit 
like some people are doing this because they genuinely that's that's who they are it means something to them and you're doing it and it looks cool but you're also getting a pass for doing it mm -hmm. socially i think another example that some friends brought up that i think is also very pertinent is like if you're an immigrant and you speak the language of your home country that's counted against you but mm -hmm. if you're someone who's like for example white and you can speak that same language you know it's like good for you yeah like if you're chinese and you still speak chinese like it's sort of seen as like counting against you and like oh you're not really integrating but like if you're someone who isn't Chinese who knows how to speak Chinese, it's like, wow, really great for you. Like, you know, it becomes a sort of, sort of benefit that someone who, who is from the culture doesn't get to receive in the same way. Yeah. Actually, there's an ironic twist on that, and that is that um, for blacks in the U.S., or for African immigrants, oftentimes they will keep their accent. Oh, really? So huh. that they can distinguish themselves from black Americans. Huh. So that when people introduce themselves it's like you you will know they're not black that they're immigrants and they mm. tend to keep their accent because huh. it doesn't give them privilege to be to have no accent and be black yeah. that's interesting i mean like that's yeah. the complete reverse i think of being asian in north america mm -hmm. where the accent is pretty much always stigmatized yeah huh sorry i'm just thinking about that that's really interesting yeah so, if we could cure, cure, if we could address cultural appropriation, or the better question is, what will we address? Like, what would need to, what would need to change? What would? Well, I think cultural appropriation itself about change, but maybe it's so about hard? maybe it's more about recognizing it and like continually having dialogue around it, mm -hmm. and maybe just making letting people speak, like, make sure that. Like, I don't know, just having more voices at the table. I don't want to say it's about having two sides to everything because sometimes it's like that's a ridiculous argument that um, gives credence to, like, it puts this false egalitarianism in play that pretends that all sides are equally valid. But there's a way that perhaps more voices need to be sought out and more conversations need to be had when it's too easy to reduce any one person or any one culture to being one static thing. I feel like there's no good, there's no clean takeaway from yeah. this. So even though, so you need to have multiple voices mm -hmm. at the table, but those voices need to actually be a part of that group in mm -hmm. some way so that you're getting closer to what, I guess, the people who actually practice the mm -hmm. culture want. Because there are times where people are trying to decide what the culture should be or what's acceptable and they're not even in the, the culture. Hmm. So making this sure the pe right people are at the table at least. Yeah, and hopefully that the if there's going to be a benefit made be from heard. their culture, like are the people who actually originated it, are they benefiting? Are they getting credit? Are their traditions being respected? Yeah. No, that that definitely makes sense. I'm I'm thinking about how um, Congress can pass laws about women's health. Mm -hmm. With very few women in the boardroom yeah, to tell them all. <laughs> why this is important, mm -hmm. or passing laws about trans rights, mm -hmm. you know, and not having a single trans person there, mm -hmm. and so you need those voices, preferably more than more than one, because it's a lot of stress to be the one person, yeah, the token person. Yeah, because I mean you can't represent everybody, mm -hmm. so you need to have two. 
<laughs> Need that too. Oh my the god! Two. Uh, like maybe this also comes to this conversation about the, the problem with like inclusion. Sometimes that could be very simplistic. Mm-hmm. Like you say, you ha- oh we have one person at the table. A we're good. Yeah, that's actually not good, because that's a lot, again that's a lot of stress for that one person. They can't do it all, and I actually find it's extremely easy to be overruled when there's just two of you. You really you need to have enough people there to where you're not even thinking about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, um, there need, as an example, there need to be enough women in the room that the, so that such that the thing that identifies that woman isn't the fact that she's the woman in the room. Yeah. So like now I can become my personality. Oh, well, she's a mathematician. She's, a, she's an English, like yeah. literary critic. Um, she's very critical. She knows two languages. She, she doesn't do this. Oh, she's from this part of the world. Not. She's the woman. And that's, I think, and it's interesting because I feel like that's the exact problem right now with the Democratic primary. Like, it's so, it's so hard to talk about Hillary Clinton without also being aware that she is the only woman right now. And having that be somehow like a, I don't know, a standout factor for her. Yeah. Or Ben Carson. I mean, I'm not going to talk about his politics, but... Um, for the love of God, can we stop talking about him being a neuroscientist? That has no real... I don't see how that's helpful at all. Yeah. <laughs> I think what's difficult when I have a lot of conversations with people about Hillary Clinton is that people want to have the first woman president, but what if people are both feminist and have genuine issues with Hillary Clinton? Like, Do they feel pressured to support her just because of that? And I think that's a dilemma. Because she's a woman? Yeah. But at the same time, then on the flip side, you also know that even though you're trying to like view her objectively, you know that given the type of world we live in, there are being certain demands put on her just because she is a woman. Like it does and doesn't count at the same time. It does work for her and against her at the same time. Yeah. Not always equally on the same things, but it's sort of unavoidable. Yeah. So we need more voices at the table. This is true. Yeah, no tokenism, please. <laughs> Hashtag. Yeah. Oh, I'm too much into hashtags. No tokens. I like that because it also helps with the idea of self-appropriation because there may even be less need to appropriate your own culture if you don't have to represent it all, yeah. all the time. And I think that everyone always, you know, we're both products of our environment. We also sort of pick and choose, and, like, that's sort of a difficult process for everyone to determine what their like emotional relationship is. my and my sushi. Yeah, yeah, let's nice put soul food and sushi. Someone that, that someone said that, and I can't remember who it was. It sounds really nice. Uh, and yes. also, for our listeners, uh, a possible title that was originally floated for our podcast was Catfish and Black Beans. Right? Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's actually a good movie. Well, and what was it about again? Um, this Asian guy, I think he was Korean. In the Mississippi area? Yeah, he moves. And I think he's in the Mississippi Delta. And... Um, and it's just, it's actually, the movie is called Catfish and Black Bean Sauce. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's pretty good. I actually haven't seen it in a while. It was made in 1999, but he actually is from Vietnam, and then he goes to live in the South. Hmm. Is it a documentary, or? No, 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 it's not a documentary. Maybe cool. that's something that we should try to watch together so we could both talk about. <laughs> but then we have a whole bunch of things on the list, like Blackish, for example, Space Jam, because I haven't seen Space Jam yet. You, you don't have to. I don't have to see Space Jam? <laughs> Charlotte was very insistent that I said she see Space All Jam. Right, go see it with her. 
Okay. LeBron James is going to make a new Space Jam. You can do that. Oh, yeah. Huh. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's Looney Tunes with Michael Jordan, who's seven feet taller than all the little characters, with a blue screen from the 90s. What else has that song? Space Jam. I don't remember what it sounds like anymore. What's time to fly? Welcome to the Space Jam. Well, we hope you enjoyed this discussion about cultural appropriation. If you have any other thoughts yourself, please feel free to tune in and give us your comments. You can reply on our Facebook wall on Pete's podcast, or you can email us at lizandzine at gmail.com. Yeah, and I think that if anything, this show shows it has to be an ongoing conversation, so we invite you to be part of that conversation. Absolutely. And uh, if you want to watch Space Jam, don't talk to me. Hey, okay. Well, anyways, this is Danielle. <laughs> this is Liz. Bye.